Hi, ABC Church. My name is Tom. And I'm Zach. And we have a few things to tell you this week. Uh, first thing is the Blood Drive on October 5th here at ABC's campus. Um, you can find out more information online as well as signing up there. Um, so if you'd like to give blood, please come on out October 5th from 9 a.m. to 1. That's right. Yeah, and uh, on Sunday, October 16th, we have Mission Sunday. So if you come to the service, we'll have some highlights from our missionaries. And then we do a dinner in the evening time at 6 p.m. where we'll hear a little bit more from our missionaries directly and be able to hang out with them afterwards and chat with them. Dude, I love that Mission Center. Mm, it's so amazing. Good. Yeah. So good. Last thing we have for you is Trunk or Treat on October 30th. It's going to be held at the Sunken Gardens. Um, we were asking people to bring their cars, decorate their cars, and wear a costume of some kind, uh, and fill the trunk with candy to hand out to the kids. Uh, if you'd like to be involved, email Sandy, and she will save you a spot. So, uh, What are you also, going for? What are you going to wear? What am I going to wear? Yeah, what's your costume? You were going to go as, um, who is it again? I was thinking Thor. I thought, oh, yeah, Thor. I already have the muscles for it, right. so I figured that would be a good uh, costume for me. Yeah. What How kind of, I, I, I'd love to go as something ironic as well, mm. but I don't really know. Yeah. What would it be? Charlie Chapman? Somebody. Something keeps you quiet. Oh, yeah, or that. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, ABC. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you later. See ya. Hello, ABC. So glad you're watching. I would love if you would grab a Bible or a phone or follow along on the screen for Matthew 8, uh, 28 through 34. Um, this passage this week has me thinking a bit about patterns. Um, so I'm thinking about my six-year-old daughter who's really into uh, the board game Guess Who? Um, you know, where you've got a board with a bunch of cards that are just facing you, you know, little cartoon faces, you pick a card. I'm sure you know the game. So she's learning that game and we're, we're playing it together. And for the first, like, couple times, I start to pick up, like, a pattern. You know, like, if you're playing poker, you kind of figure out what their tell is. Like, you know, they scratch their nose every time they're lying. So I quickly figure out that every question that she asks me about my person, that is inspired by her person that she has. So if she has, like, a... Uh, like, if she asks me, is yours a girl... I immediately know that hers is a girl. <laughs> and then she says, does yours have glasses? And I know that hers has glasses. So pretty soon, within a few games, I'm starting to guess who her person is with asking almost zero questions. <laughs> and like five or six games in, um, finally she's like, Dad, how are you doing this? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, baby. And we sort of talk about patterns, basically. I say, here's what's happening. I notice that every time you ask me a question, I realize that that's true about your person. So I don't even have to use questions to figure out who your person is. So that's kind of how a pattern goes. Yeah, This happened game one out of one, and then two out of two, three out of three. If this happens five games in a row, then I'm guessing that on the sixth game, it's probably still going to be true. So we talked a little bit about patterns. Patterns are um, interesting how you recognize them in different ways, and then you can start to anticipate what's going to happen next. And that's one of the things patterns do is they allow you to make reasonable predictions or safe assumptions about what's going to come next. And we'll circle back to that idea after we read. Um, it's interesting because with the gospel narratives, there's always two stories being layered, at least two stories being layered and woven together. 
There's the story that we're reading. Um, I would kind of think of it as the smaller story. So that's a certain scene with specific players and a self-contained plot. So it's Jesus heals this person or um, Jesus encounters this woman and there's healing. But then layered and interwoven with that is the bigger story. So the story of all of Genesis through Revelation and God's redemptive plan and history through all of that and seeing how this smaller story fits in. And I say all of that because in this little sort of smaller story today, I think we see um, a really cool pattern of the bigger story and I think it's really significant. So let's look at this text, look at this piece of a smaller story and then we're gonna look at some bigger story patterns. Matthew 8, 28 through 34, let me read that. And when he, when Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. You know how sometimes you read stuff in the Bible and you're like, that's a cool fairy tale. <laughs> that's a cool piece of folklore. Uh, just me? We have to ask, was this real? Like, this is just one of those stories where you're like, Okay, I, I think I understand theoretically that we as a church think that that happened, but honestly, I don't really think that that happened. Like, it's it's so out there. It's so different than the normal experience for you. We have to ask, was this real? If this was real, are demons still a thing? Like, what are demons? Who, what are they? What do they do? And so that's one of my first questions with this text. The same question the demons ask of Jesus. Basically, what does Jesus have to do with demons? Are they real? Did this happen? And, and, and it did. We believe as a church um, this literally happened. Like this was a real moment and you could see it and, and see the flesh and bone, life and color story play out in front of you because uh, it really happened. So some things we learned from this story and then we'll look at some things we learned from the bigger story, like I said. Um, number one, is that demons are real. Um, I don't wanna catch you off guard. I'm gonna spend the next few minutes talking about demons, um, kind of a branch in the theological category we might call angelology, the study of angels and demons kind of being um, evil fallen angels. Number one, demons are real. Um, for a definition, I, I always respect how Grudem uh, systematically lines things up. So when Grudem says, like angels, they are also created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. We may define demons as follows. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. According to Genesis 131, when God created the world, he saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. But then if you remember in Genesis 3, by that time, we have someone called Satan 
in the form of a serpent. So something catastrophic happened somewhere between Genesis 1 and 3, but Genesis doesn't say. So then it's like we're putting together a puzzle in a reverse, finding clues in places um, not only, but including 2 Peter and Jude. Here's what 2 Peter 2, 4 says. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Jude 6 implies that there was the sin of pride, at least, for these angels who refused to accept their place of submission to God. So Jude 6 says this, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. You're like, I'm just going to go ahead and turn this off right now. <laughs> I don't know where we're going with this. I, I think it's important um, to read a scene like this, a narrative where Jesus encounters demons and casts them out into pigs and then the pigs run off. Like, it's it's too bizarre not to try to think seriously about, okay, how did this really happen? What are the ins and outs of this? Um, so again, we do well to understand what we believe about demons. That's Jude 6, that's 2 Peter 2. Now, demons, we have to understand, they do what they do because they serve Satan. And we'll say more about him in just a minute. So Isaiah 14 paints one of the more compelling pictures of Satan himself. On the surface, it's describing judgment of God against a king of Babylon. But in that, it's really characteristic of Hebrew poetry and prophecy especially to point to heavenly realities by describing earthly events that are parallel to them. Even if they just scratch the surface in a limited way, they still use physical happenings to describe heavenly realities. And some of the language here, it really implies that this is talking about more than just a human king. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 says, "'How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So then we see the word Satan in the book of Job. Uh, it's the Hebrew word Satan, literally meaning adversary, the personal embodiment of everything anti-God and God's work. He appears there among Job and the others as the enemy of God uh, who will tempt Job. And then we see him in 1 Chronicles as one who stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. His name appears, appears a few other times in the Old Testament. And then throughout the New Testament, we see him pop up much, much more, either by the name Satan, which is just taken from the Hebrew. There's not a new Greek or Aramaic word for him, just Satan, or by a number of other names. We see him called the devil, the serpent, Beelzebul, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, we see in Ephesians 2, or the evil one. So, what are demons? That being said, they are real spiritual beings with intelligence, with moral agency. They serve their leader, the prince of demons, who we call Satan, who leads the rebellion against God and is himself the embodiment of all things anti-God. That's what demons are. What do demons do? What's the, the job of demons? Number two, demons steal, they kill, and they destroy. I, you may remember that line describing the work of 
our great enemy Satan himself. So they, in following their leader, they do the same thing. They are employed by Satan to steal, kill, and destroy. If you look at Mark's and Luke's accounts of the same story, we get a few more details about what what this looked like as Jesus and his disciples encountered uh, the demon-possessed men. Other accounts talk about a single man, so it's interesting seeing the different perspectives of the disciples, um, but some different color in these stories. We see that they literally lived among the tombs. So think about that just for a second. These are two human lives that you have to realize at some point were not possessed by demons. There was a time when these guys were 12 years old and had dreams and plans and hopes. And now their existence could only find its proper context among death itself. They wore chains and shackles. We read that he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And then we read that night and day, One of them was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. You see how demons do and perpetuate their father's work of stealing, killing, destroying. I mean, think of everything that had been stolen, everything that had died in these men's lives, everything that had been destroyed. The work of demonic influence. So then, let's take a turn. You say, okay, that makes sense. I see how that works in this scene, in this little piece of gospel narrative, but what about today? What does it look like today? C.S. Lewis has this fantastic quote from Screwtape Letters, and if actually, I would recommend you just turn off the sermon and just go read Screwtape Letters today. It'll do you far better, but C.S. Lewis said this, there are two equal but opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So my hope would be this, that we would navigate life with a healthy and cautious balance between those two extremes. To know that evil is not always because of direct demonic influence, but it's not never because of direct demonic influence, right? And when we think of demonic influence, my hope is that we would be discerningly open to the wide range of what that could look like. It could look like a lot of different things. On one hand, when we read stories like this in the Gospels, it's honestly closer to what we might also expect from Hollywood, just in that it's really sensational, and loud and obvious, like it's really spooky, right? Imagine seeing this story with Jesus play out. It's kind of got like the, whoa, but man, that's a, okay, that's that's horrific in a way. But on the other side of the spectrum, it can take so many different forms. And I think it's helpful, instead of asking in terms of possession, am I possessed by a demon? Um, it might be helpful to ask in terms of influence. What does it look like to be influenced by demons and by the devil. So you might not look at it and say possession, but just think persuasion. In what ways am I being persuaded on a personal level or maybe on a macro cultural level uh, in a way that that has spiritual forces of darkness uh, animating this? Just think about the hardest, darkest, most gripping things that plague people, like anything. Think about addiction. Think about patterns of abuse. Think about family legacies of unfaithfulness and divorce and anger and brokenness. I just rattle off a list. Think about the person who can't have just one drink and their life has been hijacked by alcohol 
or the person gripped by pornography who cannot seem to be faithful to another person, no matter how many times they try. Think about the anger that turns physical in so many homes. Or maybe go internal. Think about the one lie that you've heard and believed about yourself that's kept you from living life to the full. The one story, the one narrative that you've believed and that has robbed you of all your joy and sent you on a dead end, discouraging path. Think about these things. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not like witch hunting. I'm not trying to say it's all demons. Ah, get away from me, Satan. But I'm just saying if we look at the literal insanity and moral bankruptcy of our world, we're not doing ourselves any favors by ignoring any spiritual forces of darkness that might be at play. Look at culture and, and think of suicide rates being what they are and, and our hookup culture being what it is and what that leads to for family breakdown and the fallout with kids. Think of child trafficking that happens every day all around the world and school shooting after school shooting and we can't define genders. We don't know what a man is or what a woman is. There's a whole abortion industry that's disproportionately eliminating children of color and somehow gets to be branded as progressive. To think that Satan and his demons, his followers, are not involved in a pretty intimate way, I think would be short-sighted at best. All I'm saying. Like to think even if he didn't plan it, like even if he wasn't quick enough to, to master plan the whole thing, to think that he's not so pleased with so many of these things, I'm just, we'd be short-sighted to think that it's all natural, you know, it's it's all, you know, it's, it's because of this, because of the, and you can explain almost everything in natural ways, like you can find some sort of explanation, but to think that there's not some serious spiritual force of darkness giving life to so many of these, these things, I think would be short-sighted. If you just think of all that's been stolen, all that has died, all that's been destroyed, one scholar said that Satan tends to manifest himself exactly how each culture expects him to. So for you and me, noticing him and his activity, that might mean looking at some of the sad realities that you've just come to expect because that's just the way it is in the 21st century Western world. Demons steal, they kill, they destroy. Number three, what do you need to know about demons? Demons serve Satan, but they submit to Jesus. I love the language, the, the demons themselves. I beg you, do not torment me, right? Like they, they have this tone of, okay, there's a, there's a power distance here between us and Jesus. We know who we are. We know what we're supposed to do. We're, we're serving our father, Satan, but this guy, Jesus, okay, we have to literally beg. Do not torment us. And then it says again in the other accounts that they begged him. And then the language in some of the other accounts too, says that Jesus gave them permission to come out of the, the men's bodies and go into the pigs. Like it's, there's this like this tone of condescension, like, oh, you know, you have permission. Sure, here you go. I will allow this. This clear, like, authority structure from Jesus over the demons. We have to realize that demons may serve Satan, but they ultimately submit to Jesus. And I love this question that they ask. Have you come to torment us before the time? What an interesting 
kind of vague question, a little bit cryptic. Have you come to torment us before the time? Not only did they fall under submission to Jesus, but they are on borrowed time and they know it. They know that this defeat right here in this smaller story is not even the defeat in the bigger story. They're aware of their impending doom. And I love how John Mark Comer um, paints this out. He said it this way, Jesus's victory over the devil was like D-Day to World War II, the decisive battle that marked the beginning of the war's end. The devil's fate was sealed on the first Easter as Hitler's was on June 6, 1944. But there's still many miles to cover to reach our equivalent of Berlin. In the interim, the devil is like a wounded animal, a dying dragon, more dangerous than ever. Contrary to popular artistic imaginings, the devil is not in hell. He's here on earth. If Jesus' anthem is on earth as it is in heaven, the devil's is on earth as it is in hell. They know, demons know, there will be a point in the future where their ability to steal, kill, and destroy will be stolen and killed and destroyed. They'll, they'll have nothing. They'll be done. So in other words, they're saying, okay, Jesus, are you here to torment us before the time? They're saying, Jesus, we weren't expecting you so soon. Can we have just another minute? And that's what points to the bigger story. Remember, there's always at least a couple stories in these gospel narratives, the smaller story and the bigger story. And that points to this. It's the story, if you look back to see where Jesus has been and where he's going, notice a few things. This is the story of how Jesus would, before this, you saw last week, Jesus leads a faithful few into a storm that they were certain would end their lives, and he delivered them. And after he delivered them, he would lead them and send them into a place that they never would have gone to care for people that they never would have cared for. And then once he gets here, it's the story of how Jesus would encounter a couple men who were literally among the dead. And what did he do? He delivered them. And then after he delivered them, he says to one of the guys, according to Mark and Luke, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he sends them away. And then Jesus goes back to the other side of the lake. Meanwhile, the guys are proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for them. And then the next time Jesus is back in town, this is the Decapolis, there are 4,000 people waiting to hear from him. I don't know if you remember that. It's a story where he goes and he feeds 4,000. That's the next time he comes to town. And he heals those people. He teaches them. He feeds them until they're satisfied. And then what does he do? He sends them away. Okay, are you starting to sense this pattern on the bigger story? Are you starting to hear this? It should feel like, okay, you've seen this before. If this happens four out of four times, five out of five times, then the sixth time, this is probably what's gonna happen. He delivers and then he sends. He delivers and then he sends. He delivers and then he sends them. Saying, hey, disciples, you're not gonna drown in the Sea of Galilee, okay? You're going to be delivered from danger and then you're gonna be sent to those who need deliverance. Hey, demon-possessed men among the tombs, you're not going to be oppressed any longer. You're going to be delivered, and then you're going to be sent home to tell your own people all about who delivered you. Hey, entire Decapolis, you're not going to be lost in Hellenistic myths forever. You're going to be healed. You're going to be taught. You're going to be fed. You're going to be satisfied. And then guess what? You're going to be sent. Are you sensing the pattern? Remember, Patterns make it safe 
for us to assume that something will happen in the future. They allow us to make reasonable predictions. Here's what I want us to remember. It is safe to assume that Jesus will deliver and send out anyone he encounters. It's safe to assume that Jesus will deliver and send out anyone he encounters. It just makes sense. It just keeps happening. Okay, disciples deliver from death on the sea, sent to a people they would never have gone to. Demon-possessed men delivered from the oppression of demons and sent home to their own people to tell them about the mercy of Jesus. 4,000 people in the Decapolis coming, delivered, and then sent away, sent home. It just keeps happening. There's a pattern here. Jesus will deliver and Jesus will send out. Jesus will deliver, Jesus will send out. And here's... Here's what stirs my heart. Here's what makes me most excited. If the pattern isn't clear enough, think about the gospel itself. Think about the bigger story. The fact that Jesus would pass through the storm of sin and death. And it's so interesting if you're reading even these texts as a first century um, Middle Eastern person. In the ancient Middle East, the sea was deeply symbolic for a place of death, darkness, and despair. So consider Jesus who would pass through that storm of sin and death. He would pass through the storm of crucifixion. Why? To get to the tombs. So he could reach out and find those who were among the dead, dead in their trespasses and their sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He would do anything for you. He would do anything for me. He would cross an ocean in a wooden fishing boat, He would save you with a wooden cross on his back and climb up a mountain to save you from death and darkness and any demonic influence and anything that would ever try to keep you from life and life to the full that he came to give you. Do you see this greater pattern? The whole story of Jesus is a story of deliverance and not only that, a story of being sent out. It's a story of this great commission living, this as-you-are-going discipleship, being faithful presence in this world. And so as we turn to close, I, my hope is really that we would be consumed, even haunted, by his words to the ex-demoniac in Mark. He says, Go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. Because that's a call for all of us. That's the job for all of us, to go to your sphere of influence, whatever that looks like, the people God has supernaturally and strategically put in your life, and just tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Tell them about the mercy he's had on you. So two questions for you to think and pray on as we close, and then I'll pray. Question number one is, what does deliverance mean for you right now? What does deliverance mean for you right now? I'm not asking you to take objective truth of scripture and and twist it into your own thing. But I'm saying that God is always ready to deliver. Here is one objective thing that happened. He delivered these men from demonic oppression. I'm not saying that's, that's you, but I'm saying he has the power. We've seen the pattern of Jesus. 
it's safe to assume he can deliver you from anything. What does that mean for you right now? So where in your life or in the world have spiritual forces of darkness been granted too much access? And I, I really want you to think and, and pray on that. Think on the things that you're hung up on. Think on the, the habits or the hurts or the hangups that like you can't seem to get past. Think of those things that you can explain in a natural way for sure. I mean, it's because, you know, your dad was this way and his dad was this way, so now you're, you know, this way. Totally, you can psychothera, you know, do the whole thing and explain why this will happen, but, but think about the, maybe what's under the surface there. Think about the fact that there very well could be Satan and his followers who are so pleased with a destructive pattern in your life. Would you just acknowledge that and ask what does deliverance mean for you right now? Maybe it means the authoritative words of Jesus spoken over your life. Demons have to go. They don't have a place. They, they don't have a hold over you, Christian. And then number two, what does it look like for you to be sent? So deliverance demands something of us. And the question is, what does your deliverance now demand of you? What does it look like for you to be sent? Who are you sent to right now to tell and to share how much the Lord has done for you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your power, for your unmatched authority. And I really mean that literally. There, there is no one who um, competes. It's not even close. There's no one beside you. There's no one before you. Father, you're the one who, um, here in the flesh, through Jesus, demons fell and, and begged for their lives in front of you. God, that's so encouraging because I know that as I'm in Christ and, and your spirit lives in me, I speak the name of Jesus over every corner of darkness in my life and, and demons have to flee. They have to beg you not to destroy them yet. God, I'm so thankful for that. Thankful for the power we have access to in the name of Jesus by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, would you give us boldness? Would you give us a spiritual sensitivity as well and a balance? Um, make us those people, as, as C.S. Lewis warns against, not who are um, excessively interested um, and, and witch hunting behind every bush, um, but also people who are not asleep to the forces of darkness that are at play. That God, that, that so often is one of our biggest mistakes. I pray that we would be alert, we would be aware. And Spirit, you would consistently be leading us how to live as people of your Spirit and not as people of the flesh. People who actively resist and fight against the, the forces of the devil and the world and the flesh as we just seek to become more like you. God, would you guide us and guard us, protect us, God, literally, mentally, physically, spiritually, Lord, would you protect us in the power of your spirit? We love you. We pray that you'd make us more like Jesus because of our time together today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.